Mulgulls. Uh, I mean, we've got, we've got a graphic designer in church here today, uh, Connie. But logos are everywhere. You see them everywhere. I mean, you walk out of our door and instantly recognize, well, there's a logo of that food eatery. eatery. Hungry Jacks. But the biggest one, if you go down the hill, yeah, yeah, down the hill, gray. Okay. I mean, one of the, probably an international one across almost every country in the world. What's the biggest one as you go down the hill and you'll see it in yellow, okay, with a red outline that everybody recognizes from a child to a. The Golden Arches, okay? McDonald's, this revolutionized the world. Logos are an incredible selling point for businesses. You know, businesses spend, you know, huge sums of money in having logos designed that are effective in conveying their message, their message of great food or stability or profit or progress or whatever it may be. I remember back in the UK in 2006, uh, a wee while ago now, uh, just, just after the elections, I think, the Conservative Party came up with a new logo, paid $40,000 for that. Seriously, not dollars, quids. Okay, £40,000 for that. I mean, Tiffany could have done that. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, really. But they invested all that money into that logo because they felt it would sell them as a party. You see, your logo is your identity. It, it's what sells you, and it's what you invest in. And so you choose your logo well. That would have been chosen from several, several design ideas, just like ours was. I mean, the leadership team spent weeks going through multiple designs before we um, all honed in on that. So let me tell you this. Look, could you possibly imagine an organization that wants to sell its product, sell itself, that it would choose a logo with a hangman's noose? Ever seen a business with that as a logo? What about the electric chair? Or the lethal injection? The gas chamber? Ever seen a logo, a business logo with those symbols? What is the business logo of the Church of Jesus Christ? The only organization in the world that's ever chosen, deliberately chosen, as its insignia, as its key emblem, the cross of Jesus. We forget. Look, this is so... We've so domesticated this product, haven't we? Look how nicely it's been manufactured, made, presented, lit up. What is it really? What is this really? This is not doing justice to what this is. What is this? Yeah, well, so what is this? It's an execution method. Seriously, have you ever thought about that? This isn't an item of furniture. It's an execution instrument, a method that is used across this world in the in most you know, gruesome manner to execute people. And that is our logo. What's that say about Christianity? Why? Why is that such a, you know, gruesome aspect of our history, something you'd want to forget. Really? Why is that so important to Christianity that we cut across all convention and use it regardless as our logo? Why? What's so important about it? I want to look at that with you. Look, I'm sure we know some of these answers. Some of this may be new to us. It's a 30-hour series a gospel-shaped community, a gospel-shaped community has to be defined by this. Otherwise, it's not a gospel-shaped community, and we'll see why today. So I, we've got two headings, and we are going to deal with the main thrust of our passage today. Uh, and the, the first two, we've dealt with the sub-points. Today, we're going to deal with the main points. So firstly, firstly, a sub-point before we get to the main point, a sub-point. Um, a gospel-shaped community is one, is a community that is individually and specifically chosen by God. You get that? 
It's a community that is individually and specifically chosen by God. Let me ask you, what is the a priori reason for our salvation? What is the first course, philosophical terms now, what is the first cause of our salvation or what or who initiates our conversions? Someone answer that. What or who initiates our conversions? Yeah. The Holy Spirit, or Trinitarianly speaking, God. Okay, it's what Paul thinks. It's, it is what Paul thinks. Look, this is what Paul writes. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Call there is a Greek word, okay? Places, okay? Here's what it means. I think it's the next slide, please. There's the word. I'm going to give you the meaning now. The next slide. An authoritative summons, okay? Spoken or written to participate or be present or take part in something, especially a summons, in this sense at least, to the hope of salvation. So can you see what this is? This is a summons. It's a call from God, okay? It's, it carries with it the weight of the divine. It's God summoning somebody, and in this sense, what's he summoning until? If you're summoned to appear in court, what option do you have in that? If you don't turn up, okay, this is God summoning someone to what? What's he, what were we, in, in verse 26, what are we being summoned to? You were called to what? Yeah, to salvation. It's a summoning to salvation. Here's what a scholar writes. Paul directs his readers to reflect on the kind of person whom God has in fact called. The word, the Greek word there, klesis, points us to the divine initiative. If this is a summons from God, okay, to salvation, to people, with whom lies the initiative? Who's initiating this call to salvation? If it's from God, it's God who's initiating. Can you see the point? Theologians refer to this as irresistible. Have you ever heard that? There's a term some people refer to as irresistible grace. There is, it's a call from God that's irresistible. Why do you think it's theologians refer to this call that God gives us to salvation as irresistible? Why do you think they use that term? Yeah. It's, it happens through His Holy Spirit, like Pam says. And when it happens through the uh, agency of the Holy Spirit, when a person gets this call from God, it's irresistible because it breaks down all our defenses. It wins us over. It, 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 it ensures the success. It ensures that we obey. In other words, when God issues such a call, He never fails to summon the person He has in mind. That's the type of call this is. In fact, Paul elaborates. Look, he, he develops the argument further in verse 27 and 28. Listen, but God chose. Can you see? Verse 27, but God chose you, the foolish things. The next one, God chose you, the weak things. Verse 28, he chose. Can you see the thrice-emphasized thing there? Okay. Another. Yes, yeah, we Yes, oh, that's a good, good point. Thank you, Charles. At least here, right, okay? Look, here's a Greek word. There it is. Can you see? Ek legome, right? Okay? Here's what it means. Let me give you a Greek lexicon here. It means to select for one's own reasons or purposes from a number of alternatives. Can you see what chosen is? Look, we had this go round, didn't we? This, this uh, the bread. Now, when you took your piece... From the number of available options, what did you do? You chose the one that you preferred. You know, like in, in someone's case, it may be the biggest piece. <laughs> okay? <laughs> I'm feeling a bit hungry. Uh, but maybe the smallest piece, uh, maybe the piece that looked the neatest, cut, or whatever. Uh, 
but you chosen i think this word here used here is what lexicon this greek dictionary is suggesting it means okay that it was chosen or selected from a number of alternatives for a specific purpose or reason okay so it's therefore this choosing speaks of god deliberately and willfully choosing people for faith here's what a commentator adds the repetition of chose underlines the purpose of god if we just go back to that verse and you just i think maybe go backwards for me please denise i want to show you the repetition in it you'll have to go backwards and forwards is how he, he repeats himself god chose just selected if you could from individually god chose uh he chose that well, uh, there you go thank you but god chose the foolish things but god chose the weak things he chose the lowly things can you see where the weight of emphasis of, of your conversion pam lies whatever you think of it doesn't really matter you're just a person okay just like i am the important thing is what god thinks of it from his perspective can you see he chose he did the choosing he took the initiative he issued the summons so paul's thesis to the corinthians is his friends that they the corinthians are gods owned by him they're loved by him he personally chose them that was his message to them he individually selected them he took the initiative to personally call them one by one to repentance and faith and so in verse 30 paul concludes it is because of him that you are in christ jesus let me ask you pam why are you pam you why are you in jesus according to the text of scripture because yes because of him can you see the point paul wants us to know it's because of him remember here we're not talking about the overall journey of faith that's a big complex but we're talking at least about the initiation okay your faith the reason you're in him is because he was initiated the first step was taken by god salvation is in the first instance the doing of god so what paul says is because of him god set it up he facilitated our conversion and he determined it let me ask you this choosing of god this facilitating of god this initiation of god for my salvation when if you're looking at all of history of time at what juncture of history did god choose and initiate your conversion something more no a good try try again before the beginning listen to this ephesians okay ephesians 1 4 for he chose us that this choosing began when in him before not just before our creation but ever before there was a single molecule or particle or atom god initiated through choosing individuals those who would belong to his church and it's for that reason then in verse 31 paul says therefore because the whole thing began was initiated by god what can't you and i do regarding that why i'm converted and why jack is not what can't you do lee yeah but that's true but in that verse in the yellow writing what can't you do you can't brag about it you can't brag that if you're converted over your neighbor in the initial instance because of god and therefore we have no bragging rights we have no right to to judge an unconverted person can you see the point because all the bragging rights lie with god he has personally individually chosen and called individuals to faith and having called them to faith let me ask you when you came became a christian you exercised two two things you exercised repentance and you exercised faith right where did you get those two things from where did you get the ability to repent and where did you get your faith from that you exercised in jesus that's the point because even that was given us you see this is why there's no boasting because even our repentance and the very faith that we exercise was 
individually and specifically given to you as a person. Ephesians 2, here's what Paul says in Ephesians. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And where did you get that faith from? Of God. God gifted you. He chose you. He called you. And he gifted you what you needed to get into the right relationship with him. Can you see that? Okay, so here's how it works. My salvation, Montaz, was initiated by God. He called me to repentance and faith. That calling included, here's how we look for my life, that calling for me to come to repentance and faith included moving me from Great Britain at a very young age, as a young child, to, so moving me from Bangladesh, rather, to Great Britain as a young child. It included placing me in state care. It included giving me the tools I needed. He gave me repentance and he gave me faith to believe in him. And beyond that, this is a second point I won't delve into it just yet. He built a bridge that chasm the gap between me and God so that I could be connected to him. We're going to look at that in the second point. But the first point being this is that God initiates every conversion that takes place. There's more. Notice to the types of people he chooses. So God gets a free hand in choosing what type of people join his community. Notice the type of people he chooses. Verse 27. But God chose the foolish things of the world. God chose the weak things of the world. He chose the lowly things of this world. What do you notice about God's choosing ability? Yeah, he's rubbish at it, Pam. That's the point. He's really rubbish at choosing. Really. Seriously. I mean, it's baffling. I mean, if you, could, if you were starting up a new organization and I gave you a free hand, you could individually select who joined your team. We've all done this at school, haven't we? You know, when I'm, when I'm choosing for netball, you know, you know, and, and, and the two best people get to, get to choose and they're choosing. You know, I was always the last one they chose for football. <laughs> Suck it to you. Okay? Okay? Look, so if you were choosing your group, what kind of people would you choose for your new organization that's going to represent you throughout the world? What kind of people would you choose? You would. You wouldn't choose him, would you? No, I wouldn't either. Seriously. No, you would choose the best. What, is, what kind of people does Jesus choose? The worst. It's, it's an absurdity. Here's what a commentator writes. The large number of unimportant people in the church did not come about because the only people who would become Christians were from depressed classes. It's not because they're the only ones. It's like, poor old God, he can't get anybody else to join his netball team. So, so he's left with him and her. That's not the point. No, 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 no. The point is this. It came about because God chose, deliberately chose... To work his marvels through people who were, from the human point of view, the most unpromising. It's amazing, isn't it? He deliberately chose the most unpromising to be in his team. Who would do that? Who would do that? But God, thank you. God deliberately chose the classes of people to add to his gospel community who were the least significant, the least privileged. Okay, it's why he chose us. We asked you, we did the woman at the well, didn't we? A couple of weeks back. I mean, of all the Samaritans, Jesus individually selected her. He went out of his way to go on that journey to ensure that he would meet her. Of all the people that he, would have, he could have possibly chosen to be your first and key representative to the Samaritans. You're going to choose your first and key representative to the Samaritans. Who does Jesus choose? Mary. Not Mary. Yeah. The most despised social outcast in that community incredible isn't he you see is that because poor old jesus couldn't get anybody else to believe in him it's not is he 
but because he loved her. He chose her. And that's the wonderful thing about this, that it's deliberate. Jesus deliberately chooses the most unpromising Christian. Here's the thing. You're a Christian and I'm a Christian by the grace of God for, the, for this a priori reason. We are God's choice. God took the first step in initiating our conversion. Yes, we did exercise faith, but who gave you it? He gave it to you. Yes, we repented of our sins, and we didn't look at the verse, but who gave you repentance? He did. Yes, we, are, we moved towards him. Who enabled you to move towards him? God. So can you see, friends? Yes, we are involved in the equation, but you cannot get away from this fundamental reality that the initiation and the call and the choosing all occurred within God's domain. You're chosen, not just in a general sense, specifically, individually, to be the beneficiaries of his son's death. And he chose you why? Let me ask you why. Why? Why has he individually chosen you? Just want to tell me that. Why? There's a reason. I mean, it's not arbitrary. It's not arbitrary. Let me tell you what it's not to help you. It's not because you're amazing. Not that. Yeah. So. Well, that's possibly, but I don't I can't see that in, in the detail. He certainly he certainly knew Pam what we would do. Let me ask you something more fundamental. Why did he it's in Ephesians 4? You can turn to the find don't show them, Denise. Okay, this is a this is a test. Pardon? Yeah, that was certainly an aspect. But I'm, gonna, well, I'm thinking of Ephesians 4. Why? You're going to turn to Ephesians 1. So Ephesians 1 verse 4. Why did he choose you? What was his criteria? Well, he did that. He could change anybody. He could change Hitler if he wanted to. Why? Pardon? Yes, that, but it's something more. Graham's already looked at the screen. You can't answer, Graham. Uh, so, so somebody else. Well, that too, but something more. Look, look, this is one of those things. The answer's in the book, for goodness sake. It's in verse 4. It's in verse 4. Why did he choose you in verse 4? What was his criteria? Well, he made you willing. What is it? It's in verse 4. Why did he choose you? No, no, no. Look, you're all failing the test. Uh, I don't want any guesses. I don't want any guesses. I want the answer from the book. Pardon yeah, no, that's not the end of verse 4. It's at the end of verse 4. Well, that was his purpose. It's not, what is, not his criteria. In love! Thank you. Okay, you can't guess the answers. If you, you fail a theological test if you guess the answers. You have to go to the Bible for the answer. <laughs> I know. Why did I just... It would be far easier, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe I've got to learn the lesson here. It's far easier if I just give you the answer. Okay? Look, what a test have you been to when someone gives you the answer? What is, put it up, please, Denise, for us. Put it up for us. In love. What was his criteria for choosing you? He loved you. Okay? He loved you. Okay, yeah, he loved you. He foresaw nothing good in you because there's nothing good in you couldn't foresee that you'd do certain things because you couldn't do them unless he enabled you to do them. He chose you, he, he foresaw you, he selected you because of his love for you. He loved you before you were made, before you were manufactured, before you existed. It's why he, he saw you and he loved you and he says you will be mine. And he initiated your salvation and is making that work now because he wants you to be in heaven with him. He loved you as an individual. He loved you even in your sinful state. He loved you regardless of your background and how unpromising you were. He loved you unconditionally and eternally. It's what he tells the Jews. The text applies to you and me. Jeremiah 31. The next verse, please. I have loved you with an everlasting love. That's why he chose you. Because he loved you. 
He's loved you from ever, forever. You know, there's a church in America, a church group called Harvest Bible Fellowship. Uh, we were involved with them for some, time, for some time before we moved to Australia. They're a church planting network. And uh, this was a one in KL that we visited on the way here uh, once. Uh, and they, they had these pull up banners like we do. They, they have one at the front of the church. And they all, every, every, every church of this group has this one banner for sure. Next one, please. And it has this text on it. You are loved. And it's a, it's a fantastic reminder that you are loved by God. And that your calling election, that what initiated your salvation, is because God loved you. You didn't love God. You weren't even born. You weren't even made. Okay, who here loved God before the conversion? You probably hated him, but he loved you and initiated your conversion. So the first point is this, that with a community individually and specifically chosen by God because of love and because of his purposes. Second point then, the second point. That was the sub-point of the passage. Here's the main point of the passage. Point number two, a community effectively called by the preaching of the cross. Okay. A community effectively called by the preaching of the cross. We says we're a community chosen and called by God. How did he call us? We're a community effectively called by the preaching of the cross. Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Do you hear that? Do you realize you can destroy the power of that cross? Says Paul. You see, the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the message of Jesus reaching out to us, has as its center, as its center, the cross of Jesus, the death of Jesus. That's the gospel that calls us. It has as its center that cross. Here's what a Bible scholar says. The true gospel is the message centered on the cross. How do you recognize you're hearing the gospel? You have to hear the message of that, the cross. It's a a central feature of the gospel. It's its power source, says Paul. And Paul says, as such, you never tinker with it. Do you hear that? As such, Paul says, you never tinker with it. You see, the cross of Jesus is the power to bring us from sin into a relationship with God. And as such, it can never be improved. It can never be made more appealing. It can never be made more potent. On the contrary, to tinker with the cross diffuses it of its power. Do you hear that? To tinker with the cross, to tamper with the cross, doesn't enhance its power, says Paul. Rather, it empties the cross of its endemic power to save us from God's wrath. You know, some people, when they see something new, they just want to mess, don't they? They only break it. When we mess with the cross, we break it. You see, human ingenuity, verse 17 lest the cross be emptied of his power. You see, human ingenuity in preaching the cross destroys the cross. Human ingenuity in preaching the cross destroys the cross, says Paul. Listen to him again. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human ingenuity. Because if I do that, it empties the cross of his power. Here's what a commentator writes. The faithful preaching of the cross leads people to put their trust, to put their trust, not in any human device, but in what God has done in Christ. Preaching or presenting the gospel has to have the cross at its center. And in preaching, no preacher and no church should presuppose they can improve the cross or improve the gospel. You see, in Corinth here, 
that these Greeks thought that they could improve the cross how? How did the Greeks think that could, and Paul deals with it in verse 17, how did the Greeks think they could improve the cross? Through their, it's in verse 17, you can't see verse 17, this is why I said you have to have your Bible. Yeah, through their human wisdom, you see. You see, you can't improve it through rhetoric, human wisdom. You can't improve it, what's our issue? What are we likely to do with the cross? We're likely to dumb it down. We can't improve it through dumbing it down. We can't improve, improve it through any other means. We have to understand as Christian, this cross works. It works. And we all know the famous proverb, if it is not broken, don't you dare try and fix it. If it's not broken, we don't fix it. The cross works. It does exactly what it's designed to do. It doesn't need me to give it a push. Look, it's Formula One race in the USA today, okay? People competing for the world championship. Pam, Lewis Hamilton in his car doesn't need you, I don't think at least, to push his car off the grid, okay? He doesn't need you to push it. What's going to move his car off the grid? The power source of that vehicle, okay? It's 1.6 litre engine, hybrid engine, okay? Okay, it doesn't need you. The cross does not need your help. Okay? It works. It can't be improved. It doesn't need anyone to push it, okay? It can't have any human effort to help it. Verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Okay, so that's the issue here. Let me, let me ask you, here's the issue then. I want you to look at the verse very carefully. What was causing preachers in Corinth, okay, to try and give the cross a helping hand? It's in the verse. Why were the Corinthians trying to help the cross achieve his purpose? No, not quite that. Let, let me give you another way. Okay. What were they trying to do? Why were they trying to do something to the cross? They were, th th that was happening in, in uh, Galatia. In Corinth, so, but in Corinth, so we'll try again. Thanks, Sid. But in Corinth, why were they trying? They were using the rhetoric to say, make the cross sound better. And Paul says, you're emptying it of his power. Why were they doing that? Why did they feel the need to help the cross? Yeah, they did, they did. Well, look, if I give it in Formula One terms, it's much easier. The, the green lights, the red lights go off, and one car hasn't moved. What, what does that car need you to do? Push it. Okay, now, now let me come back to Corinth. The Corinthians are having to use rhetoric to, to improve the cross. Why do they feel the need to improve the cross? No, no, no so, so back to the good, no, no, sorry. No, I thought you got it right then, you see. No. No, yeah, they lacked, sorry, Nick, they did lack faith, you're right. But uh, you put it, put it a different way. Why? They didn't understand the power of the cross. They didn't understand the power, but why didn't they understand the power of the cross? What was happening? They were embarrassed by it, but something more. Something was happening in Corinth that made them want to improve it. Yeah, it sounded foolish, and therefore he was doing what? Failing. That's the point. It wasn't working. And because it wasn't working, what were they trying to do? Improve it, make it work. That's the issue, you see. The reason in Corinth they're trying to make the cross sound better through rhetoric is because it wasn't working. What wasn't it doing? Let me ask you like this. What did you think they expected the preaching of the cross to do across Corinth? Yes. What wasn't he doing very well? Bringing in converts. And so what were they doing because it wasn't working? Trying to make it better. Thank you very much. You see, what impact, of the, what impact was preaching the cross having in Corinth? Let me show you. Next verse, I think, please. Someone read the yellow for me. We preach Christ crucified, but what was he doing to their congregation? What was he doing to Jews and what was he doing to Greeks? 
It's in yellow. You, you, you can't guess. You've got to get it, you got it from the text of the Bible. What was it doing to the Greeks? What was it doing to the Jews? Yes, what was it doing to them? It wasn't converting them. It was pushing them away. Look at it. It wasn't working. The gospel of the cross of Jesus was failing in Corinth. The Jews just thought it was a stumbling block. And, and, the, and the Greeks didn't like it. I'm telling you what. You see, the Jews, the Jews, for them, the Messiah crucified is an oxymoron. What? Messiah crucified? Hello? Anyone in? You know, you know, that's like being a few fries short of a packet of fries. Okay? It's an absurd contradiction for Jews. Messiahs don't die. And they don't die as cursed criminals. What did the Jews want? They didn't want some crazy story about a Messiah being crucified. What did the, what did the Jews want to be, to be convinced that Jesus was God? They wanted miracles. They wanted the miracles. They didn't get it. They got a cross. Now, the Greeks, the Greeks are different. They just want rhetoric. What's rhetoric? Yes, you know, really intellectual, high-caliber arguments. They didn't want to, for them, it was absurd that the divine being would come to our planet and become a human and, and get crucified. Like, that doesn't work with rhetoric. For rhetoric to work, you've got to have some good substance to make it work. So can you see what's going on in Corinth? All the Jews thought it was an oxymoron and absurd. They didn't want anything to do with the crucified Messiah. And all the Greeks, well, you can't get good rhetoric from a crucified God. And so it wasn't working. The gospel was failing. And so because the gospel was failing... In, in inverted speech marks, what did the Corinthian preachers do to ensure that it would succeed? They tried to make it better. They thought, I know what we'll do. We'll reinvent the cross. Obviously, these, these early converts aren't very good at preaching, so, and they don't know how to present the cross. We'll do it for them. We're going to make it better. We're going to make the cross sound really appealing for Jews and really appealing for Greeks. That's what they were doing. That's what's going on. And Paul comes along and he says in verse 17, what does he say in verse 17? If you try and improve the cross, you destroy it. You try and help this along because you think it's not working, you destroy it. Okay, it's like a butterfly. You see a butterfly struggling to fly? Okay, what does a child want to do? Pick it up? What happens if you touch a butterfly's wings? Yeah, you remove its flying particles. It can't fly. You, say, you try and help the cross, you destroy it. And so Paul's point is, no, you can't help this message. You may think it's failing, but your help will destroy it entirely. It's why. And hence, and when they were doing this, what, when they were trying to help the converts, help to make new converts by re-preaching the cross, and they were getting new people added to the church, they weren't Christians they were making. You see, once you're trying to make converts by dumbing down the cross or reconfiguring it, you don't get real converts. You get what you get in Matthew 7. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, and Jesus will say, I never knew you. You see, once you try and make converse in your own wisdom, once you tamper with the gospel, you destroy the cross, and you do not get real converts. And so the problem in Corinth is the lack of envisaged success. That's why they're reinventing the cross, because they envisaged this message was going to turn Corinth upside down. But it didn't. Let me ask you, how big was the church in Corinth? Okay, this, was start, this wasn't started by Montas or Stephen or even Henry. Who, who started the church in Corinth? The greatest Christian ever to have lived, Paul. How big, have a guess, how big was the church in Corinth? Hmm, how big? Someone tell me. How big? Huge. Started by the greatest Christian, okay. How big was the church in Corinth? No, how big? I'm, I'm looking for figures. If someone says big, but give me figures, give me figures, real figures. 120, big? Thousands. Can you tell me how big it was? 
40 to 50 people. Peter, 40 to 50 people. Almost every New Testament church was that size or smaller. Can you see what's going on in Corinth? No one's coming in. They're not getting converted. So what do they do to the preaching of the cross? Oh, we're going to make it better. We're going to make it more appealing. We're going to tweak it so that more come in. And Paul is saying, stop. If you tweak the cross, you destroy it. The issue is, you see, is that they're not getting the converts that they were expecting. They were not getting as many people coming to faith. And so they feel that God needs a hand. You see, here's the problem. The problem with the lack of converts when faithfully preaching the cross isn't the cross. Let me repeat that. The problem of a lack of converts when we preach in the cross is not the cross that's the problem. It's bigger than that. It's God. It's God. Who does the choosing? Who does the adding to this community? Who initiates the call? He does. The problem of Corinth, the lack of converts, is not their message. It's God's sovereignty. You get the point? If he's the one who initiates and does the calling and chooses and makes, brings people to faith, then if there's a lack of converts, the issue is with the one who issues the call. Can you see the point? You see, the issue of Corinth wasn't their message, foolishly. It was God who was selecting a church of that size in Corinth, of that demographic. Here's what a theologian writes. Paul's thesis affirms that there are only two kinds of people in that verse we looked at earlier. Those in the process of perishing and those in the process of being saved. Each will respond to the gospel's message in diametrically opposite ways. Let me take you to that verse, verse 18. Here's what Paul says, verse, next verse please, it's in the next slide. I want you to look at that message. What is Paul saying on the authority of Jesus Christ about how conversion works? For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who have been saved is the power of God. Can you see? Look, no more guessing. Okay, it's got to be in the text. Can you see how many groups of people are in that text? Two. There are only two groups of people in this world. What are those two groups? No, no, sorry, uh, uh, Sylvia, that's past tense. You're almost right, but that is not past tense. So have another go. What are these two groups? Yes, that is that, but yes, they are. It is those, but there's a bit more, the end bit. The two groups are? Yes, group, not, group one is those who are perishing. Group two? No, no, yeah, but the, 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 we've got to use the text of Scripture. No more guessing. Only Bible answers, okay? Okay, those who are being... So there's only two groups of people in the world. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. There is only two groups of people in this world. Those who are perishing regardless of the gospel being preached. No matter how much you preach it, they are perishing. So you can tweak the cross all you like, says Paul. They are perishing. And then there are a group of people in this world who are being saved, who, who don't need you to tweak the cross, because when they hear the cross, what happens to them? They get converted. You see, when you see people and you wonder why the, the A get converted and B reject the gospel, is because Paul says that there are there's only two groups of people in this world and one group is perishing and one group is being converted. You see, the gospel is God's power. It doesn't need your help. It does what it's meant to do for the people it's meant to do it to. I remember when I was in engineering, I'd be, cutting a, I'd be sawing a piece of steel. Every now and then I used to leave my office and just do some real work and have a go sawing some steel. You know, and, you know here's me, you know, thinking I, I know how to saw. And, you know, my mates come along and say, oh, Montez, let the saw do the work. What, what did I mean? Who knows anything about doing anything? What does that mean? Let the saw do the work. Yeah. 
The teeth on that saw are designed to cut. They don't need your help, other than just to push them. You can't get through that piece of steel by in your own strength. You've got to let the teeth do the cutting. With the gospel, you can't force people into the kingdom. Your gospel works. Okay? It works only for the group who are being saved, who are being called, who have been chosen. Your job is to preach that truth. Stop trying to tinker with it because you think if you tinker with it, you'll convert B. No, it only works for the people who, who are being saved. And for the people who are being saved, it always works. Always works. Here's what Romans 1.16 says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for those who believe. And that's what, what Paul's point is in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness. Just don't, don't tweak your message. They'll always think it's foolish. Just preach your message, because for those who have been saved, will believe it. Can you see what we're saying here? Preach it. And preach it. Yes. You're not called to convert people, Charles. You're not called to, to change his message when it doesn't work, Charles. You're only called to deliver. You're merely a vehicle. We are merely messengers. What that message does is up to the guy who sends the message. Your job is solely to distribute that message, and the message will do its own functions. Let me show you. Luke, the doctor, accompanied Paul on his missionary journeys. This is what he wrote about one scenario, Acts 13. When the Gentiles heard the gospel, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and which group of people came to faith? Now guess him on the, on the screen. Which group of people? Only which group of people came to faith? Those who were chosen, they're the only ones who responded. The others rejected it. Can you see the point? And so hence why Paul now, coming to a close, Paul, he comes to Corinth and he's got to rectify this situation. There's a church in a mess. Just because they're small, they, they think they can amplify their numbers by bettering the cross and tweaking it. And Paul says, stop. And then he comes to Corinth. So what do you think he preaches to them? He's, got, he's correcting that issue. What do you think Paul preaches when he gets to Corinth? What kind of gospel does he preach? The gospel and the cross. Listen to this. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2. Well, thank you, Sylvia. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior speech. He's, he's, he's cursing the Greeks. I didn't come with rhetoric trying to improve the cross. I did not come to you with eloquence or superior wisdom. I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. What did he do instead? Verse 2. I resolved to know no Greek rhetoric. Okay? Only I resolved to know. Uh, to, I resolved to know what was with you. Okay? Was with you. I resolved to know nothing what was with you except. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Can you see the message he was telling him? He said, look, stop your nonsense right now. Don't you dare mess with the cross. You can't make converts. Just preach the cross and let the cross bring in to the talking. Okay? You don't choose the size of church, Corinthians, that you want. Okay? I, says God, choose the members of my communities. Here's the thing. I'm going to close with this, with this closure now. The preaching of the cross works. 2,000 years on, it still works. Okay. No technology has superseded it. So the message and the purpose of the church is to preach the cross, to preach sin, to preach expiation, to preach reconciliation, to preach propitiation, to preach justification, all in the cross. That's our message. We mustn't try to improve it. What it does and the fruit we get from it is the concern of only one being in this universe. Who? God. If he wants more, he has to initiate the call. We are solely messengers. We must never tamper with it. What we're not doing, though, we're not suggesting that we shouldn't make an effort in preaching. See, what I'm dealing with here, I'm not dealing with form. I'm dealing with what? Substance. Okay. 
We're not dealing with form. We don't care how you present the gospel, and we're all, you know, we're not decrying, making an effort, you know, having a coffee machine, having better IT, you know, you know, having a comfortable building. We're not decrying forms. We're decrying substance, meaning you can do all your engaging, but what you must never change is the word, the substance. The cross, here's a commentator, compelling arguments for the faith must always be formulated. We must always make every effort to convince people, but only the convicting work of the Spirit will ever use them to bring people to Christ. Only Jesus can make converts. In neither preaching nor apologetics is the scandal of the cross an excuse for putting unnecessary stumbling blocks such as tactlessness or lovelessness before people. You know, you know don't make it hard for people by stupid evangelism. Do good evangelism, yeah, but Murray O'Connor offers a solitary, solitary reminder that any attempt to make the gospel palatable by bringing it into line with the taste of those to whom it is preached distorts it. Because in this case, the criterion is made the expectation of fallen humanity, and in doing so, he loses his power. If you twist the gospel to suit the people you're preaching to, it will have no power. We preach the truth and let God convert people, a community effectively called by the preaching of the cross. So here's where we are. I'm going to finish. You're loved by God. That's why you're here. You're loved. That love precipitated God choosing you and calling you and giving you the tools to get converted and putting you in that group of people Labeled are being saved. You were born under that group is being saved. That's why you're here today. Your love and your call to faith. And our calling, having come to faith, is to be the vehicles of taking that same message to others who've yet, who are being saved, who are yet to be converted. We must never tamper with it to get more converts. The gospel works, we must merely let it do its work, and it will work. How big will Living Word Church be, or the Church of Jesus Christ? Only Jesus will determine that. Our job is to deliver the truth and let him do the saving. And that's what a gospel-shaped community looks like.